I think I'm an extremely honest person. My wife says that, honey, I love your honesty, but you're brutally honest. We got to get the brutality out of your honesty. Has the ball back in the corner, comes out to Pete Wilk. Looks now to Rick Barrett. Miller still watching him. Barrett wants to make a move and squeeze. you're getting to do what you love to do and someone's willing to pay you, that's not work. That's almost like stealing. Rick Barry is a basketball Hall of Famer and uh, much more uh, father and uh, speaker and broadcaster and uh, still an athlete. And he's going to spend some time with us today. Rick, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to hear from you, John. It's been a long time since we were both together back in uh, the days of KMBR. Back in the radio days in San Francisco, um, not only did we work together, but uh, we worked on the same shift. And I spent, um, I don't know, how many years were you there with us? I was there quite a few. I think I did like about five years. Yeah, so, we... uh, yeah it, was, it, was a, it was a fun time and a lot of good things going on. And uh the Warriors weren't so good, but, but the Giants were <laughs> some of the other teams. You know, um, I left the radio station and the Giants won three World Series. And then the, the Warriors won three NBA championships. And uh, I saw some good stuff. I saw a lot of bad. And uh, uh, then they win championships when I take off. So what are you going to do, right? Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're a, some kind of a warlock or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's what it is. Bringing bad, oh, bad, bad, bringing bad juju there. I don't know what was happening, but anyway, yeah. It's, hey, but it goes that way, you know. I mean, the 49ers had their time, and they went down, and then they're back again. I mean, it's just the cycle of sports that happens, and some teams have a longer cycle than others. So Rick was a, a radio host at KNBR in San Francisco when I worked there as a sports reporter and uh, sometimes anchor and sometimes talk show guy. And so, um, yeah, we worked together and it was a, a lot of fun. You, you got into the broadcast business even actually while you were still playing, didn't you? You had some uh, contract issues and you actually started broadcasting. Did you always want to um, do that when you were done playing? Yeah, it was actually I'm one of those lucky people that you have goals that you set in, in life and, uh, and mine was to become a professional athlete I first of all was baseball was the one I was thinking about because that was my best sport in high school that's why I wore 24 because of Willie Mays and you know I go out to San Francisco and my boyhood era winds up becoming my friend which was pretty amazing and I took all my elective courses in college I majored in marketing and got my degree there and you couldn't have a minor in the business school but I had enough credits to have a major in radio tv and film work because that was always something that intrigued me and when I was growing up in New York I saw Pat Summerall and I saw Frank Gifford go from their football careers into the broadcasting booth and I said wow that'd be cool I'd become a professional athlete and do broadcasting and for me I was very fortunate that that took place and i had a lot of fun doing it and the second best the best job is being a professional athlete the second best job is getting to talk about it and get paid but but i try to be more than just in basketball the most fun for me really john was was doing other sports when i got to do stuff for cbs and i did all kinds of other sports and events and that was the most fun because in basketball especially when you're being a color analyst even though i did do play-by-play -play a little bit which i prefer to do because that way you can have a much longer job because they replace the color analyst when a new guy with a reputation comes out they change those guys pretty frequently but play-by-play -play guys hang around forever but 
as an analyst during the playoffs, especially when you go to each city, you know, you're doing a good job when people are mad at you in both cities, because that means that you're basically saying good and bad about both teams. Yeah. But the fans there only remember the bad things you say about their team <laughs> and, the good things, and, the, and the good things about the other team. So they think you're biased. So it's kind of an interesting uh, scenario that exists there. Well, as an athlete, even as a college athlete and as a, a professional athlete and first in the NBA, then the ABA, then back to the NBA, we'll talk more a little bit that in a minute. You were always considered a, a pretty outspoken guy. Guy. You always sort of a guy who spoke your mind. Uh, uh, is that from very young, uh, from a very young age? Is I've got something to say and you're going to hear me? Well, I mean, it's not the way life's supposed to be. I should mean, be. aren't yeah, you supposed absolutely. to express yourself? Yeah. It should be that way. Unfortunately, if you don't say what somebody likes, then they get mad at you, which is crazy. I mean, the thing that really drives me nuts is when people ask me a question. And because I don't give them an answer that they wanted to hear, they get upset with me. I said, well, wait a second. You know, you're entitled to your opinion. I'm entitled to my opinion. You don't have to agree with me, but don't get mad at me because I gave you an answer you didn't like. I mean, it's really kind of sad in today's world how that works. And I had always expressed my opinion. In fact, of anything, I, I think I'm an extremely honest person. My wife says that, honey, I love your honesty, but you're brutally honest. we got to get the brutality out of your honesty. And, <laughs> and But my thing is, is that it's not my problem. It's the other person's problem. You know, I feel like Jack Nicholson, and I use it actually. I do a podcast called Warriors 24 with Cyrus Satchez, who was one of my producers when I was at KNBR. And, and he's had a nice career himself and won some awards. And so, one of the things we use, we have a segment, and, it, and, it, and it's called uh, You Can't Handle the Truth. And it, we use that soundbite from a few good men with Jack Nicholson, where you can't handle the truth when uh -huh. he says that to uh, Tom Cruise. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Oh, Jack. Okay, so the truth is, is that get some scouts who know talent. Don't get scouts who get hung up on somebody's athleticism. Just because you're a great athlete doesn't mean you're a great player. And so I, I kind of find that so appropriate because it really is the case. Most people can't deal with the truth. And when I told the truth, I wound up losing my job because of it because I was honest and told the truth. I wasn't going to be a shell when I did color analyst work. And people said that I was too negative. Well, it's one thing to be negative to be negative. It's another thing to be negative to be informative. And I always thought that I was negative to be informative and say, that's a bad play. When I hear an announcer say that, well, that's a bad play right there. Well, no kidding. I mean, everybody who knows anything about the sport realizes it's a bad play. Tell them why it was a bad right, play. Yeah. Explain what they should have done to make it a good play. So, And I used to do that and was very proud of the work that I did. And yet it got me in trouble. And I wound up losing, losing my job over that, which nowadays the guys who are honest, and critical get rave reviews so timing is everything in life john you know i i, I always think of charles uh, i always think of you uh, not always but i think of you occasionally when i hear charles barkley say something like wow um we're thinking that and charles barkley is saying that and i'm thinking this is probably what rick barry was saying at the time, but they didn't want to hear it. And in an, another generation or two of broadcasting, you might have been able to do that. Yeah, no question. It's a different world. I mean, as they say, timing is everything in life. It's a cliche, but it's actually a, a truism. Uh, and being in the right place at the right time has a lot to do with whether or not you're able to be successful in certain areas. And it's just one of those things that you have to be fortunate enough to have good timing. I have to uh, tell you something that I've never told you before, but when you came to work with us at KNBR, 
I was taught, and I didn't know you at all. Of course, I knew uh, uh, of you, but I didn't know you personally at all. And I was told that you're kind of a tough guy to get along with, and you're outspoken, and you know maybe it isn't going to be that um, that comfortable. And I tell you, I found it to be exactly the opposite. <laughs> I enjoyed, and I happened to work on your shift. I did sports updates on your program, and I never found that to be the case. So I guess the point of this is, John, is that be careful, John. You got to be careful because you're going to ruin my reputation. Okay, I'm. I'm Sorry, you know, I mean, you know. <laughs> so you're going to ruin my reputation of being this ogre, this horrible freaking person, which I am so. And, and you know, people, I said, you know what? I kind of try to be like a duck and let it roll off my back, but it's no question over the years that it really has hurt me. I know who I am as a person, um, and I, I can't believe some of the people that have said those things or written things like that about me uh, never have spent any time with me, and they didn't even know. They don't even know me. And yet they have the audacity to write something as negative as, as they do there. I have no recourse to it. I mean, like Bill Simmons. I mean, I, I've never met Bill Simmons. And Bill Simmons wrote and said I was a dick in his book. I mean, oh, come on. I mean, he's never met me. It's only some things that he's read. And then I finally read some things where my teammate Billy Paul said something, you know, about me. And then about half the players dislike Rick, the other half hate him. And Billy said that in jest. There were some other quotes before that they didn't use in the article. The same thing with my friend um, Mike Dunleavy, who I'm still friends with, my teammate with the Rockets, saying Rick would start World War III if he went into the into the UN. I mean, but he but he, the thing he said was very complimentary before that, and yet they leave all those things out. I mean, it's amazing how people can take someone's comments and i had that happen to me in college the same thing where they only take a part of what you say and they change the whole dynamic of it and the whole meaning of it like i was asked in college rick do you hear the crowd yelling shoot because a lot of times if i'm having a big game hey shoot shoot take a shot i said and so i said yeah of course i hear them i said but I, i'm always going to look to try to score when i get the ball in my hands and i'm going to try to get a shot provided i don't have a teammate in a better position then i'm going to throw him the ball well the only thing they used was rick barry my quote i hear the crowd yell shoot so i shoot <laughs> that was it. And so I told that writer, I said, you know what? Don't talk to me again. I'm not talking to you because you took something that I said and you changed the whole meaning of it. You didn't say the whole thing. It changes the whole, whole purpose of, of why I played the game and how I played the game. And so that's the same kind of stuff that happened to me there. Um, I, I think I'm a good person. I mean, it depends, I guess, when you meet anybody. You know, some people can be having a bad day, but you can't necessarily judge somebody. You should never do that. If you haven't really met them, uh, I know in watching me play, I can see how people would like me. I said, well, hell, I wouldn't like me if I was watching me play, too, because the way I played, I played very aggressively, very emotionally, very demonstrative. And but the thing is, when I walked off the court, that's not who I am off the court. I mean, there's there's two personas mm -hmm. in sports as an athlete. You, you have your competitive aspect when you're out there competing. And then once the game is over, all that stuff to me is over. If I say anything during the course of the game, my teammates, the guys who knew me just ignored me because they know that's just me. I'm, I'm competitive. I'm getting into the game. And once it was finished, I don't hold that. I don't take that to heart. And so, you know, but I appreciate your saying that and, and at least letting the people know that there's someone there that can actually validate the fact that I wasn't BS. And when I said I'm not that bad a guy. Yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. And then that's that, that's the point. You don't know until, you know, and uh, here's a guy who's uh, confident, self-assured, honest. Uh, doesn't necessarily make him. What did you say? Uh, Bill Simmons called you a dick. Doesn't make him. Yeah, he called <laughs> me a dick. A dick. Or, or here's the other one, John, that yeah. I found out. Like people have said, Barry, he's really arrogant. You know what? I, I really have looked at this very seriously because I've been around for a lot of years and I've watched. I honestly, truly believe that an arrogant person is someone who doesn't have confidence. 
They use that as a camouflage mechanism because basically they're scared to death. I really do believe mm-hmm. that because I, I don't feel I'm arrogant. I'm supremely confident. There's a big difference between the two. I, I believe that I can do anything I set my mind to do. And when I go out to do something that I've actually trained to do, like playing basketball, I had great belief that I could go out and do what it is that I was being asked to do at a very high level of performance. Now, I didn't always do it, but I sure believe that I could do it. Now, does that make me arrogant? I don't think so. That just makes me a supremely confident person who's not going to be disappointed. Well, I'll be disappointed. Who's not going to let the fact that I don't succeed every time detract from what it is that I believe in? Because, you know, I learn from those mistakes. If I make a mistake, a smart person is someone who learns from his mistakes, right? I mean, it's like Einstein said, what insanity is. You do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. No, if you do it, you do it incorrectly. You make an adjustment and you do it properly the next time. And so that's kind of the way that I approach things. We're chatting with Rick Barry, Basketball Hall of Famer. I'm John Schrader, and this is watch the media did you always uh, f- or, or maybe at what age did you feel like rick that you were pretty damn good at basketball and you could make a living at it i i didn't i always thought that i, well, I always knew what i wanted to try to do i mean when i was growing up i had an older brother dennis and when he decided to do something i wanted to do it so he got interested in basketball when he was nine i was five so I had a four-year jump on him. And my father was a semi-pro player and coach. And my father taught us the fundamentals of every sport. Same thing in baseball. He taught me how to catch it. He taught me how to catch the basket catch of Willie Mays. And who comes into the league for the Giants, New York Giants, but this rookie who's catching the basket catch. Well, who else could be my guy? That's the, that <laughs> right. guy. You know, turned out to be a pretty good choice. And you're from and so, New Jersey, and, then, and he played for the right, Giants. Yeah. yeah, he played for the Giants, yeah, over the polo grounds. And so – you know, and I, I mean, the whole big thing that I did with Willie was unbelievable. I, I cut school to go over and see a game one time. He got to shake his hands before he went up the stairs and, and the locker room when they had the, the, the locker room in the center field and the players would go there and go up to the locker room area. And so uh, I cut school and I come back and my brother was because it was a PAL thing, Police Athletic League, and the, the public schools were off uh, for Teacher's Day. And I was in the parochial elementary school, grammar school, they used to call it back in those days. And so I cut school to go on that trip so I could go to the polo grounds. And so I jump off the, over the fence in the field and sprint out to get Willie before he gets up the stairs and run back and get out of there before anybody got me. And, and I wound up going on the bus, get home. And my brother, and it was an early, early game. My brother said, how was school? How was the game today? I said, what are you talking about? I was at school. He said, no, you weren't. You were at the game. <laughs> I wasn't at the game. He said, no, of course you were at the game. I saw you on television. I said, you what? He said, yeah, after the game was over, they zoomed in on this kid that jumped off the wall and ran out to Willie Mays, and they zoomed in. It was you. I saw you. I said, oh, my God, don't tell mom or dad, please. And so, you know, so that, that's, you know, that's kind of how I got to, you know, wanted to go ahead and, and be baseball player. So, I, and I said, wow. Then I, I told you about Gifford and those guys, and Pat Summerall, and said, wow, that'd be cool. And then I had a bad experience with baseball in high school with the JV coach, and, you know, wouldn't let me play when I didn't pitch and I was a 500 batter and I batted better than anybody in the team so I said screw this and I, I quit the team and went and worked on my basketball and then the varsity coach asked me to play baseball and I did that and made all state two years in, in baseball but I lost my love and passion for the game which is something that's important to have in life I think everybody needs to have a passion for something in life because then it's not like really working like to me I don't think I ever rarely that I ever worked for a living in my life 
Uh, I did working six hours a day, six, ten, six days a week, 10 hours a day, driving a sheep's foot roller, doing construction work for my roommate in college, his father. In the summertime, I said, well, I'm never going to do this uh, for the rest of my life. But if you're like, I tell kids when I talk to them all the time, find a passion, learn as much as you can about it, get to be as good as you can be at it, because then you'll be like me. Just think about it. I, said, I love and have a passion for basketball. Someone paid me to do what I did. That's not a job. When you're getting to do what you love to do and someone's willing to pay you, that's not work. That's almost like stealing. <laughs> and so, yeah. and, and that's what I try to tell kids. And so I had that bad experience and then basketball and I was playing, I, you know, I made, I made the all state basketball team as well. And, got the college scholarship and all, but I didn't really know that I'd have a real chance to do it until I was a sophomore in college. And the general manager of the Lakers came down to scout our seven foot center guy by the name of Mike McCoy, who was before his time because he was a guy that never did wanted to play the low post. He would he'd rather shoot 20 foot jumpers. He was a great shooter for a big guy. And so after it was over, they, some, the writer asked him about McCoy, and it was in the newspaper. He says, well, I don't know about McCoy, you know, because back in those days, centers used to play down close to the basket, but they're back to the basket. And he said, but I'll tell you what. He said, Rick Barry is going to be a great pro basketball player someday. So right then, I kind of thought, okay, well, now I got, it. Maybe I got a real shot to do this. If the Lakers general manager said that, I better really focus on my basketball. And so I really – spend even more time going over and they'll you know, midnight one o'clock in the morning with our team manager over in the, the armory that we had on campus where we used to practice and, and spend just hours and hours just working on my skills. So you at that time then had this idea you wanted to be a pro. I'm going to revisit that in a second, but I I'm thinking Willie Mays here before we go away from Willie Mays for a second. You're a guy who's made a name for himself as a basketball player, and you finally get an opportunity as a grown-up to meet Willie Mays. That experience, uh, what was it like? Were you still that gaga kid who jumped over the side of the fence to see Willie Mays when you got to meet him as an adult? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm meeting my boyhood hero. I mean, and then we got to be friends. In fact, the story gets even better. So – Later on, Willie's doing work for, for Bally's, right? They have his 70th birthday at Bally's in Atlantic City. And so the guy who does stuff for him calls him up. He said, Rick, Willie wants you to come to, to the banquet, and he wants you to speak. I said, what? He said, yeah. I said, you got to be kidding. I said, aren't there going to be all the Hall of Fame friends of his in baseball? He says, yeah, but Willie said he wants you to be there, and he wants you to speak, and he wants you to go first. Wow. Said, You've got to be kidding so I'm at this, I'm at this banquet, you know, there's thousands of people in this huge ballroom and I'm up there with, you know, Willie Bates and you know, other hall of fame baseball players. And so I'm the first guy to go up there. And so his, I said to the people, I said, okay, I can bet you that I know exactly what every one of you is thinking right now. What the hell is he doing here? <laughs> <laughs> I said, and that's a good, that's a, it's a great response. I said, because I can hardly believe that I'm here. And then I told him the story about jumping over the fence and meeting Willie and getting to know him when I was there and say, isn't this a great country? <laughs> and so that was, that was kind of fun to do that. And then, yeah, so that was, that was pretty special to uh, be able to do that. It was kind of like the same thing. The first time I got on the court when we played against the Lakers and I'm guarding now my, my hero in basketball was Elgin Baylor. And now I'm out there. I'm guarding Elgin Baylor playing against my boyhood basketball hero. Wow. So yeah, when, pretty amazing. Yeah. When you talk to young people now and you say, I wore number 24 because I loved Willie Mays. What reaction do you get from young people uh, about who Willie Mays is? 
Uh, well, most of them probably don't know who Willie Mays is. In fact, when I talk to a lot of them, they probably don't know who the hell I am. They probably were told by somebody to go on, on the internet and find out who Rick Barry is. <laughs> that you know, tall guy played basketball. Yeah, that yeah, guy. yeah. Well, no, or, or go and look up. It's Brent Barry's father, you know, or John Barry's father. <laughs> there you so, go. Well, that's okay too, though, right? You're proud of yourself. No, no, yeah. that was that was yeah. awesome. I have a lot of tell stories about that when I talk to talk to groups and stuff about that. How I. And all of a sudden, my life changed. And my son Scooter, actually, when he was on the championship team with Kansas in 1988, and so after I, I was there and got to see that, I actually used it in a video opening I have when I get introduced to me in the stands, getting excited when he made what turned out to be the winning free throw in the NCAA tournament against Oklahoma in Kansas City. Not that I remember all of this, but anyway, <laughs> so uh, you know, I give a big fist pump when he makes it. It was great because one of my dear friends, Jimmy Schmidt, was sitting next to me and. So the next day before I'm leaving to go, I decided to pull into a drive-in a yogurt place to get a yogurt cone. And as I pull up, the guys get ready to hand me the cone, and he's looking at me. He's looking at me. He's looking at me. And I figure, oh, yeah, well, he knows me. And he points to me. And he goes, Scooter Barry's father. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so that from that point on, you know, it changed my life. And then I would, from then, I went to John Barry's father and Brent Barry's father and Drew Barry's father and Canyon Barry's father and, uh, and just really – proud of the fact that uh, my boys have all done well and been good people and and allowed and have basketball be such an integral part of their life and have the success that they all had because when you think about it john the odds on having five sons and all five of them get division one college basketball scholarships and all five play professionally three of them so far in the nba my son canyon's on the g league team should be in the nba but that's a whole nother story but he is on the national team for uh, USA Basketball 3x3 to qualify for the Olympics, uh, that, which has been pushed back to next year. But he also was on the World Championship, the World Cup team for USA Basketball and 3x3 uh, last summer in June when it's the only gold medal the USA had ever won. He was on that four-man team and actually led the team in scoring four of the seven games and played exceptionally well. So very proud of him as well. But that's, that's a pretty remarkable. The odds on that are just off the freaking charts. In fact, it's probably a Guinness record to have a father be a professional basketball player and have uh, you know, five sons all become professional basketball players. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. Rick Barry is a Hall of Famer, and I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. Can you imagine, and maybe you've talked with your sons about this, um, what it must have been like to be in the shadow of a man whose shadow is as big as yours and then go into that business and, and try to make something of yourself in that business? Do you ever talk to them about that? Well, I used to talk to them about it all the time when they were growing up and just tell them, just understand, guys, if you're going to stay with basketball, uh, you have to be prepared that you're always going to get prepared, you know, compared to me. So just be prepared for that. It's not going to be easy for you. And I remember John saying to me, oh, I don't care. I'm going to be better than you were anyway, Dad. And I said, John, I hope you're right. And But then I remember also one time there was an article after a game that he played in the newspaper did, and people asked him something. He says, why do you guys always bring up my father and doing it? And I said, John, that's exactly what I was warning you about when you were younger. <laughs> but you know what? They handled it well. Uh, they all said, I said, you need just to be your own person. Don't worry about doing anything comparing with me. In fact, my son Scooter even said he was very good at shooting underhanded free throws. And he, he said, but you know what? That I can't do this. He said, it's hard enough being your son without shooting underhanded free throws. I said, well, that may be true. 
But if you can shoot a higher percentage shooting underhanded, you're doing yourself and your team a disservice by not doing it. And the only reason I didn't stay with him to keep doing it was that he was already an 80-something percent free throw shooter. So as long as he's up in the 80 percentile, that's good free throw shooting. So I wasn't going to you know, say anything to him. Had he been in the 70s like I was when my dad tried to, got me to switch, I said I would have stayed on him. I said, son, you need, to, you need to really give this a sincere effort and see if you can be better doing it this way. You owe that to yourself and your team. But so I didn't do it. My son Brent actually did it uh, in college for a little bit, and I think he shot the highest percentage, high 80s. He was doing it, and for whatever reason, he decided to change. But again, he was always up in the 80s. And John never did try it, but John actually, I think during his career, I think one or two seasons late in his career, he actually shot 90% from the free throw line. So, and my youngest son's the one that, that took it up and has done it, and he's been up as high as 90% shooting underhanded, but he still does it. So a couple of things for the record, um, underhanded free throws. Um, you, uh, I don't know if it's still a record, but you made 95% of your free throws one year in the NBA. Uh, is that still the record? No, I actually, it was interesting because I had Calvin Murphy was on my team when I was with the Rockets. And Calvin's a great, great free throw shooter. I have great respect for Calvin, Hall of Fame player. Uh-huh. And I always would get in his head. I said, Calvin, you do understand that you'll never win the free throw shooting title as long as I'm playing. I said, <laughs> and I said, you're never going to be the guy that for both in the game. I'm always going to shoot the technical fouls because I have a higher percentage than you. So I used to just, you know, just get out of joking around with him about that. But I mean, seriously, but joking. Uh, and so... I, my last two years, and what happened, John, is I actually, I wish I had been smart enough to do this early on and made the change before when I first started in the pros because I used to shoot a lot of free throws early in my career. I used to shoot over 10 free throws a game. And it's so much easier to shoot a high percentage if you're shooting a, a good number of free throws in the game because if I miss one, I could still get it to 90. So if I'm shooting 10 or more free throws, I miss one, I could still make 9 out of 10 and have mm-hmm. 90%. But if I miss, if I'm only shooting like in my last two years, I was only shooting two or three free throws a game. So if I miss one free throw, I have to go weeks and games and weeks <laughs> to, to, to not miss and still get it back up there so I get it up to a high percentage. But the thing is that I took the risk out of what my, my father taught me, and my last six years I shot over 92%, which would be a record, and my last two years I shot over 94%. And the one year you're mentioning about, I shot 94.7. I only missed – I missed – uh, nine free throws in one season, the next to last, and ten in the next season. So I, I took great pride in that because it's the only part of the game of basketball that you can be selfish and think only of yourself, totally, completely, and help your team. Anything else that you were selfish about, you're hurting your team. But free throws is the one thing that you can be selfish. And so I took great pride in it, and I tell everybody, I said, well, I can assure you, that there was 19 times during those last two seasons that I was very upset with myself for missing because the only reason I missed is because I didn't do it properly. So you shot underhanded all the time or part of the time as no, a pro? My father, no, my father, as a pro, all the time. My yeah, father right. got me to change in high school. Yeah, right. And I don't remember, I really don't remember if it was before my junior or senior year. I guess if I wanted to, I could figure it out somehow to go back and see what season in high school I shot 80% for the first time because that was that was the season that I had made the switch over to shooting underhanded. So I'm, I'm glad my father was relentless about it uh, because obviously it's kind of the signature thing. Everybody talks about yeah. it, but I'm known for that. It comes up all the time. And I just don't understand why more people don't do it, especially in now they've had so much research done and physicists and other people have all said it's the most efficient way. It's a softer shot. 
that technically you can't shoot it a better way than shooting underhanded, and yet you can't get people to do it. It's unbelievable. You know, I think you got a whole new audience for this a couple of years ago, and maybe it was a little more than that. Malcolm Gladwell did a revisionist history uh, uh, podcast on underhanded and talked about the science of it and the uh, efficacy of it. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, where every week we re-examine the forgotten and the misunderstood. This week's episode is about Wilt Chamberlain's most famous game. Wilt's got the ball. He's gone up. He shoots. It's good. So back to the game in question. Chamberlain makes his first five shots and has 23 points at the end of the first quarter. At halftime, he has 41 points. No one's thinking history just yet. But then by the end of the third quarter, he has 69 points and he keeps going and going and going. A hundred points, the most anyone has ever scored in a professional basketball game. And here's the most incredible thing about it. He shot brilliantly from the foul line. 20, what he, 28, he made 28 out of 30, made, 30 or 32, yeah. Out of 32. That's Rick Barry speaking. He was a contemporary of Chamberlain's, also a Hall of Famer, an absolutely unstoppable scorer. I met him at his condo in South Carolina, where he lives part of the year so he can follow his son Canyon, who plays basketball for the College of Charleston. Barry is 72, six foot eight inches tall, barrel chest, legs that look like he had special extensions put on them. And that thing that great athletes have and never seem to lose, which is that they kind of glide across the floor, like they have wheels on. A big part of this episode is about Barry, but other people too, because although this sounds like it's going to be a show about basketball, the truth is it's not. It's a show about good ideas and why they have such difficulty spreading. Did you feel like you got a renewed sense of, uh, of audience for this uh, when that came out? Not really. I mean, I had people tell me that they'd listened you know, to Malcolm's podcast. I remember he came when my son was at the College of Charleston. I was over at the place we stayed in Folly Beach, South Carolina, and he came over to my place and we, we did the interview. And he was certainly an interesting, uh, interesting individual. Uh, and more than anything, it was just puzzling to him and to me as to why in the world Will Chamberlain, who I knew, shot underhanded the year that he scored 100 points in one game and averaged 50 points a game, and yet he switched back to not doing it underhanded after he had that kind of a year. Um, yeah, I just that was just amazing. I used to joke with Will because I got to know him even more after I was retired. And told him, I said, man, if you would come to me, I said, you just, your technique was not the, the kind of technique I would recommend. I said, I think I could have gotten you to be an unbelievable free throw shooter. I said, then it would have been a joke. It would have been kind of like if Shaq had ever taken me up on it because I would have taught him the new technique. If Wilt and Shaq had gotten themselves to be 80-plus percent free throw shooters shooting underhanded, the game is over at the end of close games. I mean, it's over. All you do is throw it into them in the post, and it's over because the odds aren't in your favor. They used to foul them because it was better per possession. It was one point something points per possession. Well, if you foul them, chances are they're only going to make one of two if they do that. And so you gain a little something by doing the fouling, and that's why people started fouling all the time in the hack-a-shack. 
And had they gotten to that point, there's no doubt that Shaq and Wilt, I think, would have won more championships because virtually the game is over. I mean, throw them the ball inside, dunk it, or if not, they're going to be able to get to the free throw line and make the free throws. So what kind of relationship do you have with uh, current NBA players? Well, I know a lot of them. I've gotten to meet a number of them, you know, especially you know, the guys on the Warriors, obviously, and met some of the other ones. Um, but I don't have any like we're at real friendships. I mean, they're so much younger than I am. I mean, hell, I got a lot of kids older than they are. So, <laughs> it's, so it's not like it's not like we're friends and go out and do stuff. But I mean, certainly, I, I certainly have had the pleasure of knowing them and getting a chance to speak with them. But I don't really have a true friendship with them. I mean, the age difference is, is dramatic, obviously. You went to the NBA Finals a couple of times, won a championship with the Warriors in 1975. What are the great memories of that uh, championship run for you? Well, just the fact that it was the way I always thought the game should be played, that we were a true team in the essence of what a team should be. No egos, everybody pulling together, everybody rooting for one another. Um, it was like a family. It, it, it was by far the most rewarding and fulfilling experience of my life when it comes to sports to, and I've done a lot of things in sports that have been really cool, but nothing will ever match what we accomplished there, which is the greatest upset in the history of the NBA finals, bar none. There isn't anything else that's even reasonably close to what we did. A team that wasn't even supposed to make the playoffs, not only wins the Western conference, wins our division and wins the Western conference when we were when we were supposed to do that. And then, Everybody's talking about it's going to be the greatest mismatch in the history of the NBA Finals. The Bullets are going to sweep the Warriors. They have no chance whatsoever, and we sweat them. doesn't get any more dramatic than that, yet we have never, ever gotten the recognition. All these things they're doing, the 30 on 30s or 60, whatever, all these things, features they do, nobody ever did something on the greatest upset in the history of the NBA Finals and talked about our team. Why is that? You, you think? I don't know. I really, truly don't know. Sellout crowd on hand at the Cow Palace in San Francisco for game three of the NBA championship series between the Golden State Warriors and the Washington Bullets. Gruden has a taxing job of watching Barry as Rick fires and hits. Back comes well, Kevin Porter. Well, that young man scores for this team, they really go. And deflected ball picked up by Ray Barry alone to the basket. A tremendous move away from the ball when Barry's man jumped off. Well, that's the Warriors up by nation. He goes to Barry, who again swings under, hits it. He was fouled again by Reardon. You guys remained um, uh, tight, didn't you, as a, as a group, as a unit, uh, for, through the years? Yeah, well, we should have won the next year. We screwed up. We should have had back-to-backs and, you know, messed yeah. up there and all. I still, yeah, I see, I you know, I see Gus Williams all the time at charity golf events that, I, that we played in together. And Clifford Ray is like my brother. I mean, we're, we're very, very close. And we talk on a regular basis, the daily basis, go fishing up in Alaska. Usually we go at least once a year up there and other times. And he lives uh, north of Orlando, um, and I live on the other side of the state, so we try to get to see each other as often as possible. But uh, you know, I, I love him like like a brother, and uh, stay in touch with Jamal and 
and you know stay in touch with Butch and George Johnson and Charles Dudley and unfortunately we've lost a number of guys that were on those teams you know they've lost some guys in their 40s you know lost Derek Dickey and Phil Smith and then we lost Charlie Johnson and and uh, yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's just sad that you know, a lot of those guys aren't with us. It's, and it's always great when you get together. That's the beauty of a team sport, John, is that it's nice to know that you can be the best in the world at something individually, like in tennis, golf. And that's kind of cool. I'm the best in the world at what I do. That's neat. But who do you share that with? You have family. Mm-hmm. You have maybe a coach who tells you things. But they're not out there competing with you. They're not an integral part of it. Because you're the one doing it. You're the one that has to go out and beat the opponent. In basketball, it takes a team. It takes everyone to do it. And we never would have won a championship if it weren't for my team. And that's what people have to understand, mm-hmm. is that we didn't have any big-name people. I mean, the biggest thing that happened is we had two rookies in that year that we won in 74-75 who were integral to our success. And that's, that's rare. I mean, that was, that was Jamal, who was Keith Wilkes at the time, and Phil Smith. To have two rookies perform at that level for you, I don't know if you can find another team that had two rookies do what those two guys did in a season and contribute to a team's championship. And then to never, I mean, we didn't have nobody else. I mean, Jamal wound up, you know, eventually becoming a Hall of Fame player, which is great. And, and, you know, was fought for years to try to get him in there because he had a great overall career. But it wasn't like we had, we just, and then we had a couple of guys who were nice players, and this is at the end of their career. That was Jeff Mullins. We picked up Bill Bridges. And, but otherwise, it was just a bunch of guys that people don't even know, you know, but who were good team players who fit in and did what they had to do. George Johnson and Ian Clifford were our two headed monster at the center position. And then we had Charles Dudley, who came in and was a great reserve playing in the backcourt, doing the things that he could do. Butch Beard, that most people have no idea about Butch, but Butch was really the steadying influence on our team. Uh, I mean, so it was one of those amazing things. Frank Kendrick was there during the season, and then Bill Bridges replaced him in the playoffs. But to have, you know, to have players like that who were selfless, and did whatever was necessary, whether a guy played two minutes or 20 minutes, you knew you were going to get the best out of them. They were there cheering and rooting. I remember game seven when I sucked in, in the finals in the Western Conference, and Al Adels probably, I tell everybody, the greatest coaching movie made was benching me in the third quarter of the finals of the Western Conference. I mean, what other coach would take his best player out of the game in a critical time? It took me out and sat me for a long time, and even into the fourth quarter. And our team held Chicago scoreless for seven and a half minutes. And George is in there blocking shots and doing it. And who's up cheering more for him? Our starting center, Clifford Ray. I mean, that's the way we were. It was it was just the way that I always was taught that the game should be. That you're all together, but you're but it's individuals playing as one. And that's what we did. That's why it's so incredibly rewarding to me because it was almost like a dream come true. Over toward the very side. Here is Rick coming in. Passes to Dickey, who's open. Great pass by Rick. Great pass. And a tremendous duck. Now it is Barry. Back to Clifford Ray. Goes to Rick Barry. Did you want to coach? Did you ever want to coach? I tried. Oh, you yeah, know, I tried. I mean, nobody would give me a chance to coach. It was a joke. 
<laughs> the Warriors, I talked to them forever, and I was supposed to get interviews. They never really gave me an interview, and I had one token interview. It was, it was, it was a joke. And none of them would do it. They all are afraid of me, mainly because of the fact that they knew that they wouldn't be able to tell me how to coach. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of times I've heard the coaches are told, a lot of coaches are told they had to do this, they had to do that. Well, hell, if you're going to hire me as a coach, I'm going to coach the team the way I think it should be coached. And if I don't do well, you know, fire me. I mean, that's fine. And I even to the point that I said, hey, I'm willing to go and give me a one-year contract. I don't, you don't need to give me some three- or five-year deal for multi-millions of dollars. You have concerns, give me a one-year deal. If I don't do a good deal, you can get rid of me. It hasn't cost you anything except for that one season. And you're not paying me off for two, three, four years. And I was willing to do that. Why? Because I knew that if you paid me well for the one year, I knew that I, I felt confident enough that I would do a good enough job that you'd want to rehire me. Then if you're going to rehire me, now you're going to have to pay me really yeah, well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So is this one of those situations where, and we talked about this early in this conversation, where, where reputation precedes you and you couldn't, oh, yeah, o- you couldn't sure. overcome that? Yeah, no, it's no. They wouldn't even give. I didn't even get an interview. I couldn't get an interview. And some of the people from the Warriors said that they had asked if I was going to get interviewed. Yeah, we're going to interview Rick. They never interviewed me. And they were hiring all these guys. Come on, just think of some of the people that they had in there that they hired over those years. Give me a break. I mean, how much worse could I have done? If nothing else, from a PR standpoint and a public relations standpoint, it would have been great to hire me because it would have gotten a lot of publicity. I would have been good with the media. I mean, they hired some guys that were there, and I'm not going to mention any names. Get some, of the people. some of the coaches they had had the personality of a wall. What do you think of, uh, of Kerr's um, work and um, his uh, public persona? He's not afraid to uh, get in the uh, – Political wars occasionally. Um, well, I wish you'd stay the hell out of that because yeah. that's not where we need to have anything. I don't like sports and politics being mixed. Uh, that there's no need for that. I wish people keep sports and sports and keep politics and politics. It's caused more problems than anything else. And we need to go ahead and have all the athletes just focus on it. When you get away from the game and you're out talking to somebody in an interview like something like this here and it's not at the game or doing something, yeah, fine. You want to get into politics and you want to do it, that's great. But don't compare it with the sports world because it's screwed up more things. It's cost us Olympics. It's it's a horrible thing that happens when, when politics gets involved in sports. But Kerr does a great job. I was very impressed with him. And how you could tell because they let the, the mics back in the huddle again, which they cut off for years after our 75 championship because it cost Casey Jones his job and the coaches voted against never having microphones in there. And it went a long time before they ever brought the mics back. But the, the way that Steve talked to his team and doing I was very impressed with that for a first-year coach to handle that exceptionally well. I felt he was telling them the right things to do. It gave you a real insight into it. Because otherwise, when there's no mics in there and doing it, and players come out and they do something and they say, well, that's not a good And I hear the announcers, well, that's not a very good play. I don't know why they came up with that. Well, that might not be what the coach told them to do. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that may be totally opposite of what the coach may have said. But, I was, yeah, I was very impressed with, with Steve in, the, in, in that regard. And uh, as I say, just let's keep politics out of it. Yeah. I've always got the impression, especially when you have a team that's loaded with as much talent as championship teams have, is that the job is to manage those people, those personalities, that group, as much as it is the X's and O's, because you have a guy sitting on the bench. He's got some fabulous assistant coaches with great X's and O's reputations, but one guy can manage the group. Is that the way you see it? Well, what you have to do as, a, as your head coach is you have to earn the respect of your players, and you need to do that by establishing relationships with them. And the first thing that 
you know, I always did, even when I coached in the minor leagues, as my best players, I always tried to establish a relation, go out to dinner with them, sit down, tell them what I'm trying to accomplish, and tell them it's not going to happen unless you buy into this. Yeah. And you have to understand why I want to do this. I, you know, told the players in regular meetings with all of them, I said, look, guys, we're not, and I say we, they always talk about my assistants. Clifford Ray was my assistant a bunch of times as well. I said, we're not asking you to do something that we think works. We're asking you to do something that we know works. You are the coach of the team or, you know, baseball, the manager, whatever. You have to know your personnel. And what it is is the first thing you have to do is evaluate the talent you have. What can they and can't they do? One of the things that I always did, and I never had a coach do this, I asked my players to do a couple of things. Number one, before the season started, I want an evaluation of your strengths and weaknesses, offense and defensively. Now, I asked for that because it's to see if they're being honest with themselves. I know what the hell they can and can't do already. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I already know. Okay, So I want to know if they're willing to be honest with themselves and admit that they can't do this or they can't do that. Okay, But then the other thing that I did that was the most important one, I said, give me two plays, that, you know, one, two, or three plays, whatever it is that you have either had run for you in your career or a play that you wish was run for you. So by asking him that, what is he going to show me with that? He is going to show me where on the court does he have the most confidence in his ability, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. to score. So know your personnel. Know their strengths and their weaknesses and utilize them the best way possible. I equate it to this in sales. So you're, you're, you're running, you have a company, you do it, and what you do is you evaluate your personnel. Well, you got this guy that's an amazing salesperson. You put him in research. <laughs> yeah, what, right. <laughs> what a waste of freaking talent. Yeah. I mean, and that happens all the time, John. In a matter of five seasons um, between 1965 and 1969, Rick Barry led the NC2A and the ABA and the NBA in scoring. It had never been done and will, of course, never be done again leading those three entities in scoring. That's my entree to this question. How important are stats when you look at the value of a, of a basketball player? Uh, stats have their, their place. I think that we get overanalyzed over now. I mean, analytical stuff has gone to the point of absurdity. Um, it's good to a point. And it's a matter of how well, you know, whether or not your stats are pretty good as far as the shooting. Well, the thing is, what kind of shots are you taking? Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be misleading. I mean, hey, well, he's a 50% shooter. Yeah, well, he never shoots more than six feet from the basket. So he better be at least 50%. Yeah, you should be better he, than that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. He better be shooting a good percentage. And this is the same thing. I mean, the three-point shooting is another indication that I think you can use that. In my case, I mean, 30% is if you can't shoot at least 30% from three-point range, you have no business ever taking one. And I tell my players that, okay, you never take a three-point shot unless for some unknown reason the ball winds up in your hands with one or two seconds on the clock and you have to shoot it. Otherwise, I don't ever want you shooting a three-point shot. If you're not a 30% or better free throw shoot, a three-point shooter, you don't shoot the three on my team. Okay, that's that simple. And yet they have players out there who are jacking up shots, shooting 27 28%, taking horrible shots. That's not good. So statistics come into play in that. Obviously, the free throw is the most honest one of all. You know, you're a great free throw shooter, and so try to get you to the basket. You know, I mean, that's the honest one. Mm -hmm. uh, rebounds could be misleading. It depends if the guy is, 
you know, he could be a rebounder, but he but he can also hurt your team if he's just focusing about worried about getting rebounds and not guarding anybody. That's not good. And so it's just watching the game and don't get all wrapped up in the statistical aspect of it. Uh, I think one of the things that's important is also you, as a coach, you look and see turnovers. You don't want to have an excessive amount of turnovers. It means your players are making bad decisions with the basketball, and that's going to hurt you because you give the other team more shooting opportunities. And they, if they shoot more than you shoot, they don't have to shoot as good a percentage to actually outscore you. So it's very important. I mean, basketball is not that complicated the game. It's three areas that are critical. You want to go and you want to try to limit the number of second-chance opportunities that a team has. You want to try to limit the number of fast break opportunities that a team has. And you generally see, here's the thing where the Warriors changed everything. And it's always been, make them beat you from the perimeter. Make the team beat you with outside shooting. Mm-hmm. And until and the Warriors came along, they said, "Boy, I'll tell you, man, the, not only they can they beat you, not only can they beat you from the perimeter, they can embarrass you from the perimeter." Yeah. So the way that they played and with the with the, with the firepower that they had and the ability to shoot the three pointers, especially when they had Kevin with them, I mean that's impossible to guard. Mm-hmm. I mean it's truly impossible. You can't shut them down. You play the Warriors during that time. You had a hope that two of those three guys were having bad shooting games. Because they showed that they only need two of the three to do well. Remember in some of the playoffs games when Steph, I'm not Steph, but Clay was struggling? Mm-hmm. I think it was in the first two series. They swept the first two series, and Clay was like nowhere to be found. But the other two guys were on their game. Yeah. And luckily for the other team, it would have been more embarrassing if, if Clay had been on, because we all know what he can do when he's on. Yeah. So, you know, so there are statistics that you look at that, you know, that have some impact to the game, but it's a matter of watching what's going on and looking at the matchups and seeing how people are playing. So I say, if you have an all around game, which I prided myself in having, you can't guard me. I, I don't give, you can't guard me. You got to hope I'm having a bad game. You're not going to lock me up or shut me down. That's not going to happen. In fact, at the end of your career, when the knees were killing you and you're a little bit older, um, weren't those some of your great assist seasons in the NBA where you, your job was to feed the other guys? Yeah. Well, and I played with the Rockets that they, they didn't want to, you know, they, I was willing to go and take a subservient role offensively on the team. And I was actually the, like the point forward for sure. I mean, I was out there passing the ball to Calvin Murphy and Mike Newland and Rudy Tomjanovich and Moses Malone and, and Robert Reed and Mike Dunleavy guys who yeah. all could shoot and score. And, and this I, was point forward. Top 10 in, this was point well, yeah. forward before it was before it had a name, right? Did you create oh, yeah. that oh, name? I yeah, doing, I was doing that. Yeah. yeah, I was doing that even before. I mean, I, I'd get a rebound and bring it up to four and pass it. And everybody talked about, oh, Rick Barry can really do that and handle the ball. Well, hell, I could dribble <laughs> righty left and do a crossover. That was the extent of my ball handling skills. If I were playing today, that's the one area of the game that I have to get more proficient at. But that's no big deal. All I do is go into gym and do all these drills and two ball drills and spend hours and hours and hours doing it. And I would get to the point where I could do that stuff. Okay, and I scored like 12 or 13 points a game on a team that was had this amazing offensive talent. Probably one of the, probably the most talented team I've ever played on. I mean, down the list of you know, so many guys who are such great players. So one game in the two seasons that I was there, Calvin was sick, and the coach started me at the two. I took 25 shots and had 37 points. So I said, "Don't tell me I can't play. If you want me to score." Just, you know, give me the ball. Let me be the guy doing it. But I was willing to take the other position. And it was really crazy. You know, people saying, oh, well, he's done. His career's over. He's too old. That was a joke. I mean, and then I had my knee scoped at the end of the season. 
and they found a huge piece of calcium that was bigger than a silver dollar and thicker wedged in the back of my knee. And the doctor said to me, I remember to this day, Brick, how did you play with this in there? I said, I didn't know it was in there. Yeah, I just played. <laughs> and, so, and so I just played. And so it was the first time in over 10 years that I didn't have pain all the time where I could sleep through the night where I could actually sit down in a chair and bend my knee and not have it ache me. I mean, it was like having a new leg. And I never played again after that because that year they changed the rosters from 12 to 11, and I was going to go play for the Celtics and had talked to them, just like so many other players had done. It was either the Lakers, the Celtics, or the Sonics at the time. And I was going to go with the Celtics because I felt, well, I could play with Bird at some time, you know, and then play back up to Bird and do what a lot of guys did, like what Bill Walton did and Scotty Redman did and Nate Archibald did. I mean, a lot of players went up there and and played on that Boston team and the way that they played the game. I love the way, obviously, they play the game. And I think I could have been really valuable to them, unfortunately, to show you the difference in 1980, the NBA, to save money, cut the rosters from 12 to 11. Wow. Now they have 15 yeah. and two two-way guys. And the lowest paid guy in the league, the lowest paid guy in the league counting NBA properties last season made almost a million dollars. Yeah. Different world. Timing is everything, isn't it? It sure is. But you know what? I wouldn't trade what I had for anything. I mentioned earlier about Charles Barkley and broadcasting, and you were in it early. What do you think about the way um, the the games are televised? There are so many games broadcast all of not now, of course, but so many games all over the place. And so, what do you think generally of the way basketball games are are broadcast these days? Your sons are in the business as well, so. Yeah, and they, they've done a terrific job. I just think that you have to really know what you're talking about, and you have to be able to be very observant, see things instantaneously, be able to react to them right away. And unfortunately, a great many of the people doing that aren't very good at it. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but some of the guys I look and I think that they're watching a different game than what I'm watching. <laughs> so uh, some of them are very good. Uh, some of them are outstanding. I mean, to me, like one of them of guys I really love doing it, and they've actually kept, kept them in the studio now, but the guy that I think really does a terrific job is Tim Legler. Mm-hmm. I think Tim Legler is absolutely yeah. awesome in what he does. Uh, a lot of other guys are masters of the of the obvious. I mean, they're, they're never telling you anything that you don't already see and know. See, there's a fine line between when you're doing color analyst work of being too technical to lose the average viewer who doesn't know the game that well but you also can't be so simple and basic that you insult the intelligence of the person who does know the game and that is the that is the art of it isn't it um taking what the people are watching and telling them what they didn't see right yeah well yeah telling them yeah or just explaining to them what they saw and what they saw wasn't what should have been done and what they should have what the player should have done in order to make it a good play so now you're basically you almost become like a professor i mean you're teaching people the game to recognize things and i think then it becomes more enjoyable for them because then they're going to start to see things and i remember the thing i was proudest of because i didn't get to do a lot of it but i did get to do some play-by-play in fact, I remember that Tony Verno, he passed away, who was the guy who helped stop start Instant Break Play years ago, who was a, a producer, I mean, a director, uh, worked with Bob Stender, another good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, Rick, you have a chance to do something that I don't, in, in basketball, that n- nobody's done. He said, you have the ability to play by play and cross that line. Normally, it's the play by play guy, there's the line, and then there's the analyst. He said, because of your knowledge and your 
your the way that you do your analyst work, which he, he said I love. He said you can cross that line because you have the expertise to be able to do that, and you can express yourself in a way that people are going to understand, and you can make it more enjoyable for them. If you're doing TV, it's not like radio. Yet everybody follows the ball, okay? The objective. That's what everybody's eyes are on. And so, let's say Magic's coming up the floor. We did a lot of Lakers games on there. And Magic, Magic come. I said, Magic on the break, okay? He's got Worthy on the left because when I'm looking at the game, I see it in the broad scope of things, so mm-hmm. the big picture. And so I see Worthy running down the left, but I'm telling you that the viewer is watching Magic. And sometimes you look, and Worthy isn't even in the picture yet. And all of a sudden, here's Worthy on the left, and boom, Magic makes a pass to Worthy for a dunk or something. And so try to point out things to make it so that the people see more than what they're just focused in on that object. In in this long basketball life of yours, uh, are there any regrets? Well, you know, I... I, I everything in life happens for a reason. I, I don't have regrets because you can make the most of it. Like they say, you know, you got to play the cards that you're dealt. And, and that's what I think I've tried to do in my life. But I, I always tell people that if I could do something over again, but know that I'm still in the same position that I am in right now, that I still have the amazing wife that I have still have my incredible young son Canyon and the friends that I've, uh, I've made over the years that if I know that I could still have that now, because, you know, when you change around, you do something like to Star Trek, the space-time continuum gets disrupted, and <laughs> yeah. Q wouldn't be happy about that. Uh, <laughs> so, but if I could have all of that, I, I would uh, would not have left the NBA. I think, I think that my stature in the game would have been dramatically different had I stayed in the NBA. I mean, I gave up one of the best years of my life and play for the KYA Radio Wonders with Johnny Holiday and didn't play basketball. After I just led the league in scoring, was the MVP in the All-Star game. Think about that. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I mean, so if I had stayed and done, I think it would have would have changed the, you know everything about, about me because some of the media were so upset with me for having left and calling me money-hungry and everything else, and yet I honored every contract I had. I didn't play one side against the other. I mean, the stuff that's been told about me is just so far off base and so wrong. I mean, I I went to the Warriors and said, give me your best offer because I told Pat Boone, I said, look, I'm going to ask the Warriors for the best offer. If it comes anywhere close to yours, I'm not going to leave. I owe that to them. And and they they lowballed me. I mean, they didn't do what I told them they should do if they wanted to keep me. And so, I mean, so that's the way it was. And then I wound up going over there and having all the other crazy stuff I went through and but it still, it still was a great experience. I mean, a lot of stuff was, I mean, the ABA was so Bush League and Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's unbelievable some of the things I went through there. And, and then doing the stuff that I coached in the minor leagues and the stories I have for that, the things we did there, I still can't even look back and say, yeah. oh, my God, I can't even believe I did all that stuff. Let's do this. Let's have a conversation about that um, the next time we chat, shall we? People trying to get me to write another book and do something now because I didn't write a book for a long time and doing stuff, and it'd be interesting to – put a lot of this stuff down so that people can understand, you know, what happened. So I, I don't know if I'm going to, what I'm going to do right now, but a lot of this stuff here I've talked about before, but a lot of stuff I haven't. So it's been a great life for me, John. I'm yeah. so blessed and thank God I'm still you know, healthy and have, uh, have great kids and a great wife and a great right. life. And so everybody should be, everybody should be lucky enough to have the life that I've had. I mean, could it have been different? Yeah. So I would have made a lot more money. So big deal. I mean, you know, money is only good for so many things. I mean, it doesn't ensure happiness. 
it does make life a little bit easier at times, but uh, you know, how much is enough? I mean, these guys are making enough money to live a hundred lifetimes for God's mm-hmm. sake. So anyway, the only difference would be if I made that kind of money, I'd be able to do a lot of things that I wish that I could do for other people. Then I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. I'm much better giver than I am a receiver. So, but I'm, I'm truly blessed. Uh, it's great talking to you. I wish you all the success well, in, in life. And I know that you're probably enjoying still being involved in the broadcasting world because once it's in your blood, it's there forever. It is. And I wish all of your, <laughs> all of your listeners, I wish them all the best, good health during this very, very turbulent and difficult time. And hopefully we'll get through all of this and, and move on. As you say, all things pass. Uh, it's just going to be something that, I don't know, hopefully it'll never happen again in this country that we'll be better prepared for handling a situation like this, but I just do wish everyone the best that life has to offer. He's Basketball Hall of Famer Rick Barry, and I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media.